From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. From household cleaners to water bottles to cosmetics, every day we are exposed to a variety of chemicals as we move throughout our day. Some of these chemicals can disrupt the body's endocrine system and are especially harmful to pregnant women and women who are trying to conceive. Hair products containing endocrine-disrupting chemicals, when used by children, have been shown to cause early onset of puberty. This can have serious consequences for a child's emotional and physical health. On today's episode, Dr. Tamara James Todd joins us to talk about how these chemicals can lead to the development of chronic disease, as well as the racial and ethnic disparities in environmental chemical exposures. Dr. Tamara James Todd is a researcher and assistant professor in the Departments of Environmental Health and Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She was among the first to report that phthalates, synthetic chemicals used as plasticizers in many consumer products, were associated with diabetes and diabetes risk markers in women. Dr. James Todd's work currently focuses on environmental chemicals and metabolic dysregulation in pregnancy. Hello, Dr. James Todd. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your career background? Sure. So um, I am a epidemiologist, but the way that I kind of got into epidemiology was a little um, circuitous. So I, um, during high school, knew that I wanted to um, become a medical doctor. Um, I would come from a long line of, uh, of medical doctors and um, had made the decision that I wanted to do that early on. I went to Vanderbilt University where I was crazy and I did a double major in molecular biology and viola performance. And um, during that time period, I had the opportunity to um, participate in a National Cancer Institute funded program called the CURE program. And it gave me a lot of exposure to um, you know, basic science and working in a lab and um, and I decided at that point that I really didn't want to do that. <laughs> and some of the things that I kind of fell in love with, though, along the way um, um, weren't really veal performance or even molecular biology based, but rather the kind of intersection between biology and sociology and women's history and trying to figure out how could I weave together some of those interests um, and still not really knowing. And the little bit of signal that I had um, was my mom is a microbiologist. And so I would go to work with her from time to time and was exposed to what I thought was epidemiology, which in retrospect was probably more infectious disease epidemiology. Um, And so I totally thought that these were people that were going to go out to the field wearing those big ginormous suits that um, would would be kind of tracking Ebola and other conditions um, and diseases. And I kind of knew I didn't want to do that, but it did kind of marry some of my interest. Um, So um, my senior year, um, a dear friend of mine um, passed along one of those like flyers that you get in the mail, like come check out our program. And it was a master's of public health program in international health at Boston University. I had never been to Boston before. 
Um, but I said, okay, I'll apply to this program. And at the end of the day, it came down to this master's program and a PhD program in virology. And um, I jumped ship on the PhD program in virology and decided to pursue the MPH in international health. Upon arriving here, um, kind of brand spanking new, Boston's an expensive city. I needed a job. <laughs> and um, Dr. Tim Lash, who um, is now down at Emory um, University, uh, but at the time was here, um, I reached out to him that first day that I was here, and he gave me uh, my first job, again, exposure to epidemiology. So he was in the Department of Epidemiology at the time, and I was doing international health, different fields. <laughs> um, and um, I had my first exposure to breast cancer, and this is kind of where everything starts coming together. So the CURE program is funded by the National Cancer Institute, and I mentioned that I had had those experiences during my kind of undergraduate um, time. Um, I spent the next two years working with uh, Dr. Lash, having the opportunity to do breast cancer research and explore health disparities in older populations. So um, I learned a lot about the disparities that were going on with re regards to breast cancer stage of diagnosis in black versus white women and had the opportunity to really um, kind of apply and engage those skills and do a little bit of molecular um, epidemiology at that point and decided around that time that I was going to um, go ahead and apply for a PhD in epidemiology. I really had fallen in love with that as a discipline. And um, went down to visit Columbia University and fell in love with that program. So they had a, a training program um, headed up by um, uh, Dr. Al Nugget, and it did merge together all of my interests. They had social behavioral sciences, uh, environmental health, as well as epidemiology that were all a part of that um, program. And um, I had the opportunity to work with people from all of those different disciplines. And it was around uh, that time that, um, as I was transitioning from the master's program um, into the, the doctoral program, that I had the opportunity to really um, decide that I was going to study something that I learned about during my master's degree, which was um, hair products and thinking about something that a um, professor had actually mentioned during a, uh, a lecture on, um, it was an ecological study. And so she was talking about advertisements in magazines marketed to black women versus white women. And one of the things that um, they had done, and this was through um, a study um, conducted by Silent Spring Institute, which is based here in Newton, um, they had looked to see uh, were black and white women being marketed to differently with respect to the types of products um, that were being used. And, um, and, and they found some really interesting associations. Um, for example, you more commonly saw placenta-containing products in magazines advertised to black women compared to white women. And um, that piqued my interest because around that time I ran across a study that um, noted that hair products that were used on very young children, as young as four months old and as old as four years old, um, um, were associated with increased pubertal development. So children at this age, which you would not anticipate seeing breast development or pubic hair development, you actually did see that. And once um, the pediatric endocrinologist who was working with these children uh, suggested stopping, um, the breast regressed and the pubic hair fell out. Um, so I decided that was going to be the topic of my dissertation. And so the problem, of course, was how on earth do you study something like that when no one else had really studied it before. So um, that was kind of my entry into um, environmental health, <laughs> which uh, if someone had told me that's what I would be doing, I, 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 would, be, I would have been shocked. <laughs> um, but um, in general, I kind of, you know, again, had this very circuitous route of getting into what 
um, became environmental um, reproductive epidemiology. Going back to the, the study, it was actually conducted by Nancy Maxwell um, some years ago. And so um, back in the 50s, um, the, the Food and Drug Administration actually made a decision to um, require companies to actually document whether or not they were putting hormones into hair products. And so along with that decision, a number of products came kind of off the market. Or, um, But um, unfortunately, um, there were differences um, based on kind of culture, ethnicity, and so on. And so um, a product that you can still find, even if you walk into a Walgreens today, for example, or CVS today, Hask Placenta. Um, it's a brand that um, essentially um, is commonly marketed to uh, women of color. The question I often get from folks is, well, um, you know, why would people use this? And, um, you know, based on some of the qualitative analyses that we've done um, in the past to try to collect some of this information, it's thought, um, at least anecdotally among among people, that um, similar to during pregnancy when women, typically their hair grows um, more and it's fuller, um, and that's thought to be due to horm- hormones, um, uh, the various hormones increasing, that um, the use of such products that are placenta containing um, may also have the same impact. Um, the other question I often get asked is, oh, well, is this human placenta? Um, and if you look on the back of the product, it actually states that it's usually sheep or some sort of other um, mammal, <laughs> but um, typically not human. So um, um, certainly that was kind of an entry into kind of looking at um, of, of these at these products, if you think about whether or not something that we apply to our body could somehow be absorbed and then have some sort of endocrine impact or hormonal effect on our bodies, um, that could either dysregulate that or um, alter our you know reproductive system. Then you could think of a variety of adverse outcomes ranging from um, earlier age at menarche, which we did see uh, when we looked at some of the associations between certain hair product use and, um, and breast cancer risk factors, which is where this work started. You focus on women's health. Can you tell us how you got into this field? What drew you to women's health? In general, because my original experiences in the uh, CURE program were primarily focused in on breast cancer, um, that was kind of the beginning of that. But one of the things that I also realized um, was that um, in the context of some of the environmental uh, research that was being done, particularly around endocrine disrupting chemicals, a lot of that work had focused in on male reproductive health and had not um, looked at um, female reproductive health. Part of that, um, with respect to a chemical class that I particularly study, known as phthalates, is that they were thought to be anti-androgenic. And so in thinking about what impact those would have on uh, reproductive health, um, it made sense to think about men and less so about women at the time. Uh, what we are now aware of is that not only um, you know, are there sex differences um, and in, with respect to how these chemicals can operate, but that um, timing of exposure matters. I also like the complexity of working uh, with women and thinking about um, you know, high exposure, high risk populations across what can be sensitive windows of time, whether that's pregnancy or transitions into menopause um, or puberty. And so thinking about that not as a nuisance, which is what I think in the past folks really did think um, the reason why women were understudied was because um, dealing with 
the hormonal cycle of women makes it challenging. But I, I, I enjoy that challenge. What are endocrine disruptors? Um, so there are a number of working definitions for what endocrine disruptors are. Um, the WHO defines them as exogenous substances or mixtures that alter um, the normal function of the endocrine system and that they can cause adverse health effects um, in organisms or the progeny um, of organisms. So these are chemicals that are really thought to, um, you know, whether it's the reproductive system or homeostasis or metabolism, have the ability to affect um a variety of, of different processes, either through hormonal or epigenetic or other uh, processes. You are also studying health disparities and chemical exposure. Can you tell us about this? Sure. So um, again, kind of mentioning that um, my initial work around this started with looking at hair products. Um, when I first brought this to my thesis advisor, she said, oh, well, everybody uses shampoo. I said, well, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I'm actually talking about things that people, you know, put on their hair and leave on for like weeks at a time. Um, and she then said, are you talking about hair straighteners? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not. I'm talking about hair oils and lotions. And and then the, the complexity of that was how do you ask people about that? Mm -hmm. And um, And again, there were very few to no studies out there. Um, Chandra Tiwari, who was the pediatric endocrinologist who first um, noted in a, in a case series um, the exposure of these young children and their early kind of, or precocious pubertal development, um, you know, it was really the only study that was out there outside of that Silent Spring study that I mentioned. You know, so it seemed apparent that there was probably something about um, certain populations, you know, perhaps populations of color who may be exposed to different things, whether that's due to cultural differences or what expectations are with respect to uh, just certain practices. And so we needed to figure out a way to document that. Um, and in doing so, we had to start with qualitative research. So I am an epidemiologist. I'm trained as a quantitative researcher. And um, so we, we did enlist uh, some help. This was, again, work done at Columbia. And so we did a number of focus groups, and I learned a lot. So <laughs> we brought in people uh, from a variety of different backgrounds um, and, and just kind of had them speak around, like, what do they call different products and uh, what were they using and how did they use it? And some of the most interesting stories that we um, learned of was that people would take birth control pills and chop them up and put them in like a kind of conditioner uh, that they would um, kind of heat up and then apply directly to their scalp. Um, there, there, there was a variety of different things. People would use mayonnaise or egg mixtures and, and, and you know, kind of do it yourself. But, you know, um, I was quite honestly very surprised to learn about the, the, the many different ways to, that, that folks would use hair products. Um, it was also eye-opening um, to, to, to learn that there were vast differences across populations. And so in doing so, we had to first document that. So we had to document differences in exposure patterns. And what we learned was that there were certainly groups that were likely more commonly exposed because they just simply used um, you know, these particular types of personal care products more frequently. So that was kind of the entree in and thinking about, well, could that explain some of the differences that we see with respect to disparate outcomes in, in health conditions? And so uh, the next step was to look at uh, what was an established or well-known outcome, uh, precocious uh, puberty or earlier age at menarche in this case. So 
menarche is when a girl starts her period. And so um, that is an established breast cancer risk factor. So for each year um, that um, a, a girl reaches her period or starts her period earlier, she has an increased risk of breast cancer. It's thought that that's because she has more exposure to um, estrogen as a kind of underlying um, hormone. And so in, in looking at that, we did find that um, more frequent um, or ever use, as well as more frequent use and longer use of hair oils, uh, was associated with a uh, significant increase in earlier age at menarche. And we saw that when we wanted to see if there's um, if hair product use actually uh, was part of the explanation in earlier age at menarche um, between black and white girls, we see that it looks like it, it does partially explain um, those differences. So what unfortunately have been kind of written off as some sort of underlying biological or genetic difference that clearly is non-modifiable. We can't do anything about our, our race or ethnicity, which by the way, race is a social construct. Um, <laughs> but um, we found that here is an environmental factor. It turns out that um, many of these products contain a variety of chemicals such as parabens, um, phthalates, they're often fragranced, um, and, and other um, um, chemicals that are thought to be endocrine disruptors. And so if you're using this on a young girl early on, frequently, often daily, um, it's being applied to the hair and scalp. The scalp is one of the most porous tissues that we have in our body. Um, it doesn't just stay on our scalp, it actually enters our body. And so um, thinking about modifiable risk factors, um, this was um, why I really decided that health disparities and thinking about health disparities is you know one of the areas that I would like to continue to focus my research um, because I think that folks often in the context particularly in the world of environmental health uh, we think of gene environment interactions so oh well if there are differences it has to do with some sort of underlying genetic difference and there's little thought as to how social constructs can impact what people are being exposed to and how that could subsequently impact disparate conditions with respect to our population health. Right now, we're doing a number of studies that um, really leverage an ongoing uh, pregnancy cohort um, that's housed at Brigham Women's Hospital. Um, and it's called the Life Codes Pregnancy Cohort. It really serves as a biorepository, but it started back in 2006. Um, there's now over 5,000 pregnancies that have um, occurred. Um, Urine, blood, a variety of other tissues are, are collected as a part of that. And um, we've piggybacked on to, to that study in that um, my K research was initially um, funded to look at data that came out of a nested case control study looking at uh, phthalates and phenols in relation to preterm birth. And so um, what we did was we utilized the control population from that. Uh, nested case control study to look at um, phthalates as an endocrine disrupting chemical um, and the risk of, of uh, a variety of g gestational diabetes related uh, risk factors. So namely um, glucose, um, first trimester body mass index, as well as gestational weight gain. And so what we found was that um, there are different types of phthalates. They're used for different reasons. Um, these are chemical plasticizers that were initially studied as anti-androgenic um, chemicals. Um, what became more clear as the, these, these chemicals were studied was that they also can bind to our body's nuclear receptors. And in doing so, they have the ability to upregulate um, certain uh, target genes. 
uh, the specific target genes um, in nuclear receptors that are involved are um, a, a class of nuclear receptors known as peroxisome proliferator activated receptors. Um, and they're agonists of these receptors in that they can actually bind and upregulate adipogenesis or fat cell accretion. So they're thought to be obesogens. Um, and when you think about what are things that are associated with obesity, um, you can think of a variety of things, but diabetes is one of the things that comes to mind. And so in thinking about that, um, we really wanted to kind of figure out, well, during the con during pregnancy, would you see a different differences with respect to women who have high exposure versus low exposure to these chemicals um, within in all these various gestational diabetes uh, risk factors. We found that it's the lower molecular weight uh, phthalates. And when I first kind of started on these projects, the higher molecular weight phthalates, uh, particularly the parent compound di-2-ethylhexyl phthalate, which is used in polyvinyl chloride and just a variety of different com um, consumer products, including food packaging, um, um, was what folks had primarily studied. Um, but what we were finding was diethyl phthalate, which is commonly used in personal care products. Um, it's used to hold in fragrance. So women who use perfume, um, women who use fragrance products, including um, kind of lotions and, you know, other types of products are thought to have higher exposure to, to these. So the women have higher exposures than men do. Again, I mentioned earlier that men were more commonly studied um, than, than women up until more recently. And so there were sex differences in exposures, but there are also sex differences in how the outcomes um, are associated with these exposures. And so when we looked at this, we saw that um, the metabolite of diethyl phthalate was associated with higher glucose levels as well as excessive gestational weight gain. Um, so we looked at that in the life codes um, um, study, but we've also looked at it in the Earth study. So this that study um, is uh, the, the PI is Russ Hauser, uh, the acting chair of the Department of Environmental Health, and it's a study uh, based at a fertility center um, at Mass General Hospital. And women who have infertility are at much higher risk of developing um, um, gestational diabetes. And so, in thinking about that population with respect to environmental chemical exposures, um, you know, the question was: Would those women be at even higher risk, or would the, the effect kind of just be washed out. Um, and what we found was that um, we, we see even stronger associations between these same, uh, this same particular uh, phthalate metabolite and uh, glucose levels. What we know about gestational diabetes is that women who develop gestational diabetes have a sevenfold increased risk of going on to develop type 2 diabetes in the first uh, five to 10 years following the pregnancy, which means it translates to about 50 to 70% of those women going on to develop type 2 diabetes. So we know that this is a high risk group. What we also know about that group is that we can actually significantly reduce their conversion from gestational diabetes to type 2 diabetes by through dietary intervention and physical activity. The question is, are there other factors, other environmental factors that we could actually um, further um, kind of reduce um, exposure and reduce risk? And so, um, you know, you ask me the question of where do I want to go with this? Um, so we're finding associations with respect to, um, you know, in the context of pregnancy, and we're starting to look at the postpartum period because we actually think that that is as, as is equally a sensitive uh, period. Um, of exposure and could really signal, um, you know, an opportunity to intervene. So what we want to do is really also consider that 
as an equal weight and develop interventions that could um, reduce exposures through um, identifying natural um, products that people can use, um, particularly natural personal care products um, that people can use, as well as um, really think about vulnerable populations. So what we found is that women of color have higher exposure to um, these products. Um, so figuring out strategies that we can um, use to impact um, and really um, change what is being marketed to and what is being used by women of color. Um, that. I think includes engaging um, those populations through educational campaigns, but also um, changing industry standards um, through policy changes um, for what is allowed in, into, um, you know, whether it's personal care products, hair products, um, perfume, whatnot. You know, let's just say phthalates are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Um, and... Um I bet that when all of us woke up this morning, many of us probably, you know, showered and used a soap that may have smelled like something um, and maybe a lotion or two. And so it turns out that um, the average um, woman uses, um, you know, roughly, I think it's 12 products a day. Um, men don't use too many fewer, actually. <laughs> so, um, so we're exposed to many, many chemicals every day. Um, the Environmental Working Group actually has published work on, on this. And so, um, you know, the, the, I, I often do get the question of like, how can we reduce our personal exposure? And, um, and so one of the strategies, I mean, one, it's, it's hard to do. Uh, but two, um, going fragrance-free. You know, these days you can go into a store. You know, most stores carry fragrance-free products. Um, so, again, I, I mentioned that... Um, with respect to some of the associations we're seeing, it's it's the parent compounds that are often used to hold in fragrance. Um, so, you know, the Brigham Women's Hospital, they have a fragrance-free policy with respect to no perfume use and so on. And at the time, I remember when I first uh, came a little over 10 years ago, and I was like, what do you mean I can't use perfume? Um, you know, um, but now I'm very grateful because at the time I had no idea that, um, you know, there were chemicals in, in, in these products. I mean, I think the other thing is being aware that just because something is on the market doesn't mean it's safe for us. And so, you know, the, the hard part is that if you go into a store and you turn over the back of the bottle to look at the ingredients list, it's mostly things that we can't even pronounce ourselves. But having some increased awareness and knowledge about, you know, what is actually in the products that we're using on a, a daily basis um, and taking an active interest, I think, in that um and not assuming that it's safe just because it's it's there on the shelf. Um, certainly, um, the Environmental Protect Protection Agency, um, you know, does a variety of studies to evaluate the safety of of these products. Um, but there, every year, there are many many new chemicals that are introduced to the market that go untested. Um, and the onus is really on the company that's producing it. And, well, we know what that means uh, with respect to, you know, from a variety of different perspectives. So we, we I think, as consumers really need to kind of um, consider what we're putting on our bodies daily. Um, so from from my perspective, as far as, like, what have I done myself? So as I mentioned, I, I don't wear perfumes anymore. <laughs> I, um, I do try to find fragrance-free products. I have children, so um, I, I've gone with a product line that is, is a natural product line to use on them. Um, and that, that makes me feel better. Um, but, 
I think that, you know, we still, um, we still ourselves need to really, um, as consumers, make this a, it's something that we take issue with, that we actually raise to the, the, the attention and awareness of policymakers. Um, I think that at the end of the day, given that they're ubiquitous, we're going to need greater regulation with respect to, to these issues. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. James Todd. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Next time on Think Research. Good research should stand on its own, but the reality is that policymakers also want stories. They also want to hear about individual people because it makes it more real to them. And my clinical time certainly gives me that sense of what this means to an individual person when they are facing these barriers to care. Dr. Benjamin Summers talks about his research into the Affordable Care Act and what's next for this landmark law. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.